Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured release this week is Some Awful Cunning by Joe Ricker. Ryan Carpenter is an underground relocation specialist who helps people escape the danger of their life and start over. After agreeing to help the young wife of a Texas oil baron relocate her stepson to escape criminal prosecution, Ryan learns more than he wants about the oil baron, his wife, and the stepson. Haunted by his own forced relocation, Ryan betrays his client and is forced to scramble for his life, which only puts him face to face with the childhood past he's been trying to escape his entire life. His flight brings him from Albuquerque, New Mexico, back to New Orleans, Louisiana, where Ryan learned his underground trade as a relocation specialist. There, Ryan seeks the help of his former mentor to escape the endless resources of the people who will stop at nothing to find Ryan and have him killed. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and sound man. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own stories. Others will be classic that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. This is Season 1. The first half of the season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from the previous. Really, you have to listen in order for the story to make sense. Start with the episode called, What a Lovely Corpse You Have, and catch up to us. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of character in the show notes to help keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, bearing the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't do, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, she flushed out game for Ian Black in exchange for information that would provide answers. Instead, all she got was questions. What happened to her husband's notebook? Who was the woman he was last seen with? What was he doing outside the hotel that night? The path to the answers goes through Rome. Today's story is about turkey sandwiches, birthdays, and unexpected house guests. This is episode four. First stop, hell. Rome made sense as a place to start. After all, it was where Gabriel died. Sure, my number one suspect was the big ag lobbyist Buford Winston, and yes, I wanted to go for his throat. But too many mistakes had already been made on the original investigation. If the Italian police had given Gabriel, nope, I'm, I'm not going there. Like they say, if its and butts were candy and nuts, then we'd all have a Merry Christmas. 
With the information from Gabriel's brother Alexei, the certainty big agriculture was the root of Gabriel's death rose to 80%. Now I am woman enough to admit 20% was fact-based and the balance was gut-checked. Big Ag was called Big Ag for a reason. It wasn't limited by inconveniences like oceans or borders. Gabriel worked here in the States, but his research took him to the four corners of our spherical world. When he traveled, he rarely resided in the spaces made famous by Michelin. When your field of choice was feeding starving populations, you went to spaces made famous by violence and drought, social unrest, ethnic strife, and natural disasters. My husband went in willingly. His idealism buffed until it glowed like the North Star. His ammunition was his laptop and his treasured quinoa. It'll take a little time to drive back to my place. Why don't you indulge me in some backstory? Now, in my pre-marriage days, I was the poster child for the happy, successful, professional woman. I had a life beyond that I dreamed of, jetting around the world in the high-stakes game of chemical weapons. I bought and sold, I armed, I disarmed, I arrested, I entrapped, yada yada. The CIA recruited me before I finished grad school. I had all the credentials, I was fluent in four languages. I had a master's degree in chemical engineering with a specialization in explosives and what turned out to be my biggest assets, tits and ass. I loved my job. Let me make that clear. This is not a sob story of someone who never quite made it to the top, who messed her hair up when she smashed against the glass ceiling. I loved my job. Were there downsides? Well, really, that depends on your point of view. For example, I was not there when my mother caused an accident by paying more attention to her lipstick than the concrete median. Then she needed to be driven around for six weeks. I kept it real with my sister and my father. They traveled to me a few times and, you know, we talked, we emailed, we texted enough. My life was simple in some ways and complex in others, but ultimately it was my own. Until three years ago. I was in Washington after completing a successful mission that sent an unspecified regime's chemical weapons program back to the Stone Age. Each day there seemed to be a reason for a, no, a new never-ending meeting in a windowless room with bad coffee and tasteless sandwiches. Any moment I could, I was outside. One day the meeting ended early thanks to little something something in the chicken salad, which I was not responsible for, but I totally appreciated. To celebrate my foresight to choose yogurt and fruit salad, I went for a run. You just never know when the difference between a good day and a bad day comes down to stamina, training, and moving just a little bit faster. I was in a park with a hundred other people who escaped worked early, enjoying the feel of real air on my skin, sunshine on my face, and pavement beneath my feet. Then he ran into me, literally. Gabrielle came around the bend on the wrong side of the road, wrong side of the path, and pow! Just like in Batman from the 1960s, the word leapt between us, putting me down hard on the core surface. The asphalt took the skin off my knee when I rolled. I ended up in a very unprofessional-like, unathletic position. Oh, I was about to go Hulk smash on the dumbass when I got an unimpeded view of Professor Bambi on ice. Hulk backed off at the total confusion in those big chocolate eyes. I got to my feet and asked, what the hell were you thinking? 
Well, Gabrielle's foot kept shooting out from underneath him. The grass beneath was slick from the hard morning rain. I gripped his arm and pulled him toward the path, arms and legs learning to work together again. I was considering the effects of the climate change on nutrient-limited populations. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. And he just kept going, limping after me when I would have left him bloody and grass-colored knees. He was like a determined puppy who spoke in big words. What could I do? I took him home. He was smarter and kinder than any man I'd ever met. Our first date was Chinese food while I administered first aid to knees and elbows, after which he rearranged my apartment to make it more efficient. Weird, but it did work better. Days turned into weeks. I was happy. I knew I was living on borrowed time. After all, I'd been in the States for two months, the longest since I'd gone out on assignments. It couldn't last. Gabrielle's temper had a fuse a mile long, but it was connected to a nuclear-grade bomb. Detonated one Sunday after I explained why what we had was fun and games, but it was time to move on. When the dust cleared, we were engaged. I had put in for a transfer. Six months later, I was Mrs. Rupchinskaya. We owned a little slice of suburbia, and I was part of a pilot program keeping the sharpest, hardest kids in D.C. in line. Life was good, but in a different way. My husband invited me into the world of chemical formulas capable of sustaining people rather than killing and maiming. My day job was in the poorly named youth prevention facility. To qualify, kids had to have genius level IQs and a rap sheet. You know what happens when you combine wicked smart with few moral boundaries? Yep, moi. Every day I reaped what I'd sown. Those kids challenged my ass from sunup to sundown and were as devious as the high-stakes world I'd left behind. When I changed my life to make one with Gabrielle, I gave up nothing and got everything in return. For two years, I juggled marriage and chemistry, court appearances and barbecues. Well, I could write a book about it, but it would be boring, because nobody wants to read a story about how happy someone is please. We all want to read about hardship and pain. We want to know other people's lives are worse than ours. Oh sure, we all appreciate a good underdog story, but only after the dog has been kicked, stepped on, and lied to. So, you'll be happy to hear, we're at the point where my life went over a cliff. A year ago, Gabrielle had been invited to be a keynote speaker at an international conference in Rome on population growth. He was so excited. He called everyone he knew and a few people he didn't. We were flying out together. I'd have a little vacation in a city I adored while he razzle-dazzled Big Ag from around the world. The night before we were to leave, one of my kids was arrested, Andrew Dixon. Everyone has a favorite and Dix was mine. With my husband's support, I delayed leaving for a day. The next morning, I was at the hearing at Dixon's side when he was charged with hacking into Taco 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 and repricing beef tacos to 10 cents. He owned the crime but argued extenuating circumstances. He was hungry and he only had a dollar. I loaned him the money for the fine, which he would earn back with a part-time job at said Taco Taco Taco. Everyone was a winner. While I was home, packing for my flight. Gabrielle was in the streets of Rome, dying. The call came from Rome police. They were sorry to inform me my husband had been killed, the victim of a traffic accident.
They said Gabriel stepped into the busy street without looking. He died in surgery, his chest crushed. I didn't question the conclusions. I got on the flight to Rome with nothing but my travel documents and a shattered heart. The next year is hazy. I'm sure I woke and dressed and ate. I had to have gone to work and paid the mortgage. I must have grocery shopped and cleaned the house and done every other part of daily life. But I don't remember it. Then I opened an email. November 9th, 2018. The short note was written in broken English. I nearly tossed it in the spam folder, expecting a long-distance cousin was secretly a prince of the UAE and interested in participating in a little trickle-down economics if I can only send him $1,200 to bribe custom officials. The email wasn't about economics. It was pushed. I spent many hours looking to tell you. I told the police, but they no interested. I am hoping I am doing right, Annette Lambert. The attached video was three minutes long. The first minutes were of a busy Rome night. Tall stone buildings flanked the street with cars jockeying for position like in a Mario Kart game. People hurried along the sidewalk. The ground was glossy, reflecting the lights above. It had rained recently. A woman laughed, the one who recorded the scene. And he stepped into the frame, my Gabriel. The camera stepped down to the street. A quick toot toot had the camera jumping back to the sidewalk. The image shook, but it captured Gabriel lurching forward, tumbling into the street at the moment a yellow vehicle crossed through the same point in space. He was there, and then he simply wasn't. The camera angle fell until only shoes were visible. Shouts in Italian called for an ambulance for the police. Calls sounded out to help my husband, and many answered. Many, many tried. Yeah, well, fuck lot of good it did. I contacted the Rome police about the email. I spoke to the investigating detective. I sent him the video and presented the evidence. Now I'm fluid in Russian, French, and Spanish, but not Italian. Still, I pieced together the vocabulary and I calmly showed proof my husband did not enter the street out of poor judgment. I did not scream like a hysterical wife. I did not throw out baseless allegations. And I did not make mountains out of molehills. My career had been law enforcement. Knowing how the game was played, I professionally laid out the evidence, asking his case be reopened. I obsessed over checking voicemail and email. I slept with my phone next to my bed and even took it into the bathroom. A week after I initiated contact, I received a short email. Signora Rupchinskaya, thank you for your video. We have reviewed and determined our original findings are correct. Signor Rupchinsky, regrettably, stepped into the street and was struck by a passing vehicle. We continue to search for the driver and vehicle as time and resources allow. Respectfully, Inspector Luigi Marconi. I followed up with Inspector Marconi and then his supervisors, but all to no avail. There was sympathy for the widow, but no real consideration of new evidence in such a simple case. Every door slammed in my face. So I opened a window. Four months before my death, I contacted Ian Black. He called a friend of his own who interviewed Annette Lambert. He extracted details not clear from the shaky video, including a partial license plate number. Another friend of Ian spoke with the police who shared the copy of the final report and a forgotten detail. 
Gabrielle had had a lady caller at the hotel. The hotel staff indicated the woman who spoke with the Russian accent visited my husband both days he'd been in residence. The police suspected the two were having an affair and it was perhaps because of this woman my husband died. Had he been looking at the street instead of his mistress, he would be alive today. For Gabriel, I was a different person. I reveled in skills and resources, brains, and loose enough moral code to take advantage of all my assets. While it may not have been my body in the grave, Gabriel's wife died with him. The next day, I decided to kill myself. Now, now I'm just a woman who's going to set the story straight. My husband was murdered, and someone somewhere holds a clue. Someone knows something to point me to the next something, and so on and so forth, until pow! It's about the details of crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and having the patience to find the place where the killer screwed up and crossed the I's. With the end file in my hand, I could get down to details. What the hell? Oh, my phone just lit up like the sky on the 4th of July. The ground alarm at my place had been triggered. The neighborhood I lived in was just a few notches up from the hideaway and still warranted extra measures. I installed a wrought iron gate outside the open cage of the rear stairs. An electric fob was needed to get in the gate, rig it, pry it, climb it like somebody just did, and I know it. Stopped at a red light, my phone flashed yellow. The perp passed the second floor landing. Only the first two floors in my three-story building housed civilians. The third floor, with its three apartments, was mine. My phone flashed red. The light turned green and oh, I left rubber on that road. The perp was now on my floor. Two apartments overlooked the street. One lived in, the other I worked in. A third empty apartment faced the parking lot. I didn't need the space, I need the privacy. Only one mile to go, but a mile in this city was like the last two minutes of a basketball game. Stopped at another blasted light. I swiped across my phone, opening an app showing an elongated dot in the empty apartment. The infrared image indicated a single perp. But who? Well, Sam Irish was my first thought after that little scene at my funeral. But I'd been careful setting up the cover. There was no way Irish could find me four hours after he knew I was dead. Except it wasn't impossible. Irish was that good. What would Irish want with me? He and I concluded any unfinished business years ago. Okay, technically, I owed him one, but come on, can a dead woman catch a break? This just wasn't like Irish. I mean, he's all business, and no business would bring him to my door after three years. Finally, I whipped into my parking lot. My feet were on the pavement before the engine was off. A glance at the app showed the soon-to-be-dead man was in my apartment, lingering in my kitchen. The cocky bastard was in my refrigerator. Okay, this wasn't Irish. This was, well, just unprofessional. Whoever this asshole was was about to get a lesson in breaking and entering. My hands breaking his neck and my boot entering his ass. Traded my phone for my 9mm and silently climbed the stairs. The ancient cast iron steps were as temperamental as an old dog. I invested serious time learning the bitch's moods in store spots. Skip steps three, step on the right edge of step six. Slowly, methodically, I crested the third floor landing. Consulted the app. 
Now the perp sat at my kitchen table. The front two apartments have rear doors off the kitchen to a common hallway. The hallway leads to a door and the rear landing where I now stood. My perp had picked the useless $100 electronic lock I installed, but was considered enough to leave it open for me. My weapon drawn, I proceeded up the hall, ready to make Swiss cheese of anything that moved. I reached the set of twin doors. The one to my right went to my workspace, and it was intact. The one to the left to my living space, well, that was ajar. I, the wave of my fob, I entered my workspace and then re-engaged the lock. I checked the app. Son of a bitch was back at the refrigerator. What the hell kind of bottomless pit asshole was in my house? Spot lingered. It fucking lingered at my refrigerator. Then it drifted back to the table, only to pong back toward the refrigerator and veer off to the right. It was in the bathroom. Seizing opportunity, I stripped off my sophisticated slut boots to slip across the hall on bare, silent feet. Gun raised, I entered my apartment. The bathroom was directly opposite, door closed. I slipped through the door immediately to my left and took a low position inside my bedroom. My heart pounded loudly in my ears. I counted the beats, willing my pulse to slow. The dress wasn't meant for surveillance, squeezing the breath from me. I hitched up the short skirt, trading modesty for mobility. The toilet flushed, but no water rang in the sink. The bathroom door latch clicked and it was freed from the door frame. I peeked around. A tall, lanky bastard strutted into my kitchen like he owned the place. I struck like a cat, silently, fluidly. A surprised cry went up and then his face was pressed into my floor, my gun pressed to his head. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't put a hole in your head a bus could drive through. He was a good six inches taller than me, but the body below mine was thin, nearly hollow. I, I ain't finished with my sandwich. Your what? I shook my head trying to get the words to make sense. My sandwich. That's what I thought he said. I looked at the face communing with my wax floors. Unbelievable. Pushing on my feet, I dragged the teenage bag of bones with me. Andrew Dixon, what the fuck are you doing here? Six foot, two inches, 160 pounds of trouble goggled at me with eyes as big as sandwich plates. I knew you wasn't dead. Dixon moved like an overgrown puppy, not sure whether to spin, leap, or pee. I knew you wasn't. He clapped his hands and pointed at me. You was at your funeral today, right? I thought you was like your fat sister. How did you know I wasn't dead? How did you find me? I just sort of sensed it, you know? It's like, you know the difference between when you really lose something and when you just can't find it? Yeah, I couldn't find you, but you wasn't lost. Having worked with Dix and a dozen like him for a few years, I developed an ear for the teenies. Well, there were rules and logic to this speech, and I, I found it best just to ignore everything between the commas. So you had a feeling. I slid the safety on the gun and secured it in a kitchen drawer designed for my specialty cutlery. And your feeling brought you here? I followed you here like a month ago, maybe more. You know, when you started acting weird? After today, well, I don't know. I, like, I needed to see for myself. When I saw the body in the casket, who was that anyway? Shoving the kid toward the table, I sat down opposite him and ignored his question. Eat your sandwich. Jeez, Dix, how much turkey did you put on it? He flopped into the chair, rocking it on its back legs. There wasn't much left. He opened his maw and happily filled it. 
It's a full pound. I just bought it yesterday. One slice of whole grain bread floated six inches above the other, surfing on alternating waves of sliced deli turkey and baby Swiss. My jug of whole milk sat on the edge of a paper towel fronting as a plate. Don't tell me you're drinking from the bottle. At least he had sense enough to blush and not talk with his mouth full. Silence hung as Dix chewed and I wrestled with what to do. It's kind of embarrassing that some juvie punk found me four afters, hours after I was put in the ground. Kind of pissed me off. I studied the kid as he ate, wrestling with the circumstance I hadn't anticipated. He knew. Once somebody knows, they can't ever unknow. Not while they lived. Alternatives. There were always alternatives to every situation. I could... Wait, there was more color to Dix's face than rosy cheeks. I lifted the veil of black hair obscuring his left side of his face. Nice shiner. The butterscotch coloring of his mixed race heritage was sullied by an explosion of reds and purples. His cheekbone was swollen to twice normal size. I got a nice pack from my freezer and wrapped it in a towel. Put this on it. You walk into a pole while texting? He shook his head, his eyes on his sandwich. Dickhead gave it to me. Birthday present. Dickhead was his old man. I shouldn't have complained last year when he forgot. Dix was completely matter-of-fact about getting beaten on his 17th birthday. His face sickened me. They coached us not to get involved in these kids' personal lives. That's bullshit. You had to be inhuman not to be outraged at what these kids endured. Dix would grow into a handsome man. A few years under his belt, a couple dozen pounds on his frame, and, oh yeah, Andrew Dixon was going to be a heartbreaker. Can I crash here tonight? Here? It's my turn to impersonate a mouse. Yeah, you know, maybe on the couch. I won't make no mess, and I'm quiet. Dixon prattled on, making his case to stay. It was pathetic, sad and pathetic. Couch surfing isn't the answer. He shrugged. I got plans. I'm going to get me my own place. I just need to crash till I make my move. Can I stay? Cute pathetic eyes. Please, Anna, call me Diamond. Shit, this was not in my game plan. One night, Dick slept to his feet, jarring the table and slopping milk out of the carton. Sweet, man, sweet. Let's get going. If we're lucky, he'll be passed out by now. I shook my head and, nope, didn't make the connection. You fast-forwarded on me, Dix. Go where? To hell! I need to get my stuff. Dix shoved the rest of his sandwich in his mouth. Gone! Well, 20 minutes later, we rolled past houses two nails away from condemnation. The street was once something more, a hub of middle class with a parade of mature oaks and maples. That's me, the one with the beware of dog signs. Dixon had named his house Hell. I had named a junk pile. I turned into the driveway and pulled the borrowed minivan nose-to-nose -nose with the gate and the sign. Do you have a dog? Nah, just the sign. Dix leaned into the dash, staring at the house as if to use x-ray vision to see inside. Bass thumped out. ACDC, not good. Come on back round with me. What's bad about ACDC? Oh, Dick had drinks too much and relives his glory days working security for bands. He is a head smasher. I'll go in through the window and hand you my stuff. He cranks up the music so loud, he won't know we're there. House wasn't much. Small Cape Cod couldn't add more than a thousand square feet. Dixon stared at it, his eyes wide, his face colorless except for the tag on his cheek. 
He licked his lips as he faced as hell. Let's just go walk in the front door. We go in, we get your shit, we walk out. And it would be my pleasure to handle the man who handled Andrew Dixon. Dix withdrew subtly, shoulders curling in and he leaned back against the door. Just, just let me go in through the window. I do it all the time and it'll be easier. I disagreed, but I wasn't going to force it. All right, I'll leave the car running. I'll open the gate, pull back past the house, and he can't see you there. Dixon moved hurriedly to the gate. He walked hunched over and on the balls of his feet, his gaze on the house. He opened the gate slowly, more slowly when it creaked. He cleared the driveway and then hurried me through with a frantic wave of his hand. Well, by the time I headed and parked, Dixon was standing on two inverted five-gallon buckets and had the window lifted high. Hands pressed to the window frame, he jumped and disappeared in the house. I left the comfort of the van to stand in the fenced square of competing weeds. Take this! A 32-inch flat screen came out the window. I took it, setting it down carefully. A second game and came and then a desktop computer and a box with a keyboard sticking out of the top. Then a leg. Dixon! His face appeared over his knee. What? Clothes. Oh, yeah. His face disappeared. The leg retreated. I got busy settling the electronics into the van. The monitor snuggled onto the floor mats in the rear seat. The tower and box of accoutrements went in back. What the fuck are you doing here? Nothing. I ain't here. Dixon spoke too fast, too high. Racing back to the car, I retrieved a set of handcuffs and my 9mm. You're stealing from me! There was a crash, heavy and dull. You worthless shit! Another crash and Dixon cried out. I removed the safety as I sprinted to the side door. Five steps up and I was in the small hallway. Ugly, violent words blasted from the room to my right. Dixon laid on the floor, curled into a ball while 200 pounds of drunk ghetto trash kicked him in the ribs calculations happened in an instant it took twice as long to execute but then the senior dixon was on the floor sucking up whatever crap littered that soiled carpet planted my boot on the outstretched hand and enjoyed the crunch how's life on the receiving end dick had cried out dixon was still curled in a ball i couldn't get to him to see how bad the damage was but needed him on his feet dix get your stuff dix he lifted his head then and i saw the boy battered bullied broken by the man who should have been his hero. I centered my sights over said man. He's never going to touch you again. Maybe it was the calm truth in my voice, but Dixon clambered to his feet. He upended a tin redskin's garbage can and stuffed the clothes from the drawer. Who, who are you? The police? Dickhead craned his neck. His teeth were stained pink with his own blood. Yeah, I'm the police. You have the right to remain silent. I kicked him in his balls. He waved his right. Anything you say, Cannon, will be held you, held against you. You beat your son? You like beating on a kid? Dick had cuddled his swollen nectarines. He's a waste of air, worthless. He needs discipline. A geo Dick said sitting on the shelf fell and landed on the old man's ear. Oops. You almost done, Dix? Yeah, sure. He shoved a fistful of t-shirts into the can. Take your stuff out to the car. He nodded and went to the window. Dix, we're using the door. 
I moved around the old man, giving the boy the room he needed. The can filling his arms, Dick slept over his father as though he were fire, and then he ran out of the house. When I heard the back door slam, I crouched close to the old man. People like you sicken me. You don't feel like a man unless you're beating on someone weaker. You don't like your life? Well, that's your problem. You take it out on a kid? You made it mine. And me? I'm a problem solver. The door slammed again and Dixon landed in his room. He leapt over his father and then moved a pile of clothes from the closet floor to an empty box. He ran the box to the car and returned. He then pulled a pillowcase and filled it with trinkets from his room, including the rock sitting next to his father's head. I'm done! The floor was cleaner without the piles of clothes. The table working as a desk was empty except for a stack of textbooks and binders. Take the school books and get in the car. I'll be right there. Dick started to argue on the need for books, but then his gaze focused on the nose of the 9mm and where it was pointed. What are you going to do? Bad things happen in bad neighborhoods. The poundage beneath me began army crawling across the carpet, raking a hundred pounds of fat over the coarse fibers. Let's just go. Blood dripped from Dixon's nose. His long hair dragged it across his face. He trembled, a dog running from a fight. He's not worth it. Dick had made progress by inches, aiming for the gap under the bed. I put the cuffs to good use and then bound his legs using a belt. He's not, but you are. He's your boogeyman, the thing under your bed. You're not going to be free as long as you're afraid he's going to come after you. Dick had kicked his feet, teetering on the lump of belly. You want to live on your own? Think you can do better without me? Get out, you ungrateful shit. After all I gave you. Gave me, Dick roared. He stood taller, thrusting out his thin chest. Like the time you gave me a broken rib? Like the time you made me lie to the cops about falling down the stairs? It's no wonder Mom left. It's a wonder she, she f fucked you at all. He loomed over his pater. Fear transformed to anger and then, well, then it dissolved. Like sugar in a glass of hot tea, it was there one minute and gone the next. A smile grew across his face and then he laughed. <laughs> Let's go, Diamond. Dixon made the key to his prison and walked out a free man. We left like normal people, leaving a normal house. Dickhead? I left him on the floor. Hands cuffed behind his back, legs bound. Sooner or later, he worked his way out, or he wouldn't. The neighbors would come, maybe the cops. Didn't care. In the minivan, we cranked up the radio until the windows vibrated. We sang at the top of our lungs, leaving one life behind and racing into better beginning. Happy birthday, Andrew Dixon. Now, with his business taken care of, I could finally get to mine. Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter, Grieving Widow Seeks Husband Seducing Biatch. If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of Dixon's Turkey Sandwich, you can join our Body Bag Brigade to help support our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolfe. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf and published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs>